Well, good morning. Happy Labor Day. I am thankful that we're a boatless church. Uh, you are here this morning, and uh, that means that you don't have a boat to be on the lake. So we are grateful for that. Actually, it probably means that you prioritize the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, and we are thankful for that. Uh, have fun at the lake this afternoon as you uh, scatter and go. We are grateful uh, that you are here with us at TCC this morning. My name's Matt. I do the majority of the preaching here at TCC. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open them to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 uh, will serve as our text this morning, beginning in verse 9 here in a minute. If you show up next week at the same time, same place, you will be in the right place at the right time. However, there will have been a service immediately preceding this that you will have missed. So we go next week to two services, 9.30 and 11 o'clock. Same service, identical style, everything will be exactly the same, but hopefully we're providing a context where uh, you can do more than just stare at the back of people's heads and sit really tight and close together, but we can spread out a little bit, invite friends to be a part of what we're doing. We'll have core classes. Our modified Sunday school ministry will happen during both of those services, so you should know which one your core class is offered. If you have questions about kids' ministry or youth or collegiate stuff, Please see those leaders. If not, you can see me after the service. I'll be down front if you have any questions about the changes next week. We will also begin a teaching series 13 weeks through the book of Deuteronomy next week. So uh, hang on. We're going to be action-packed action and fast. We're going to get through the book of Deuteronomy by Christmas is, uh, is my goal. If you want to read ahead, the first couple of chapters will be where we begin next week in our time together. If you are with us for the first week, we are really finishing our summer teaching series, though these two weeks have been a bit of a transition for us. We look throughout the summer at the book, or actually at the paragraph, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. We talked about uh, the reality of human deadness and trespasses and sins, the plight that we are under by nature of being under God's wrath, and the beautiful redemptive work that Christ did to redeem us, to save us, to bring life where there was death. And in verse 10, how we are created, recreated in Christ Jesus for these good works that God has called us to, that we could walk in them. Now, it would be wonderful for all of us in the room if walking in good works was a natural process that you consistently grew in through your journey with Christ. If walking with Jesus was this ever-increasing experience of grace and obedience that you consistently walked on throughout your life. But we recognize that for all of us, motivation is an interesting thing, isn't it? Consistency in Christ-likeness is an interesting thing. Our motivations, our desires have peaks and valleys. What motivates us to maintain consistency or even to do something that we haven't been doing in the past? For many of us, it's the start of something new or start of something different. For some of you, it's the ability to do things that you're really good at, and when you're doing those things that you're really good at, you thrive in them and have the motivation to continue. And most of us recognize that we're not very good at following Jesus most days, so our motivation wanes. Or it's the payoff, the reward that comes at the end when you are obedient. 
But motivation for those of us who are in Christ is something that peaks and valleys. It comes and goes. Interestingly, in many office places, about five, uh, five to seven years ago, there was the uh, influx of motivational posters. You may have these at your office place. Uh, perhaps they felt that you needed a pick-me-up on your way to the potty at work break, but uh, you, I think they started with the rowers, you know, everybody rowing in the same direction, and it had some cutesy claws at the bottom, keep going, push in the same direction, you'll achieve great things. Well, that spawned, my favorite, the demotivational posters, right? That take the, so for example, some of these on the screen behind me, you may not be able to read these, aim, aim high, what's the worst that can happen, right? <clears throat> what's the worst that can happen? Or the second one, overconfidence. This is going to end in disaster and you have no one to blame but yourself. Or perhaps this one, dedication, no matter how hard you try, there will always be a missing piece. Or the last one, my favorite, teamwork. It's worth the 83 cents, right? <laughs> so <laughs> perhaps we would call these the realist among us that recognize that the motivational posters of rowing in the same direction while looking cute perhaps don't sustain the motivation or drive that we need for consistency in this life and particularly in our walk with Christ. So what does sustain consistency? What does allow us to consistently grow in good works? We've recognized, as we've studied through this paragraph in Ephesians 2, that everything that we do in, in light of good works is in light of the gospel. These are the things that we should do as acts of worship. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that these are our reasonable acts of service. This is what you would expect from someone who grasps the nature of the gospel. This is what should come out. And we saw last week in verses 3 through verse 8 that one of the outflows of this reasonable service is us all discerning how God has built us together and what role that plays in the body of Christ. That one of the outcomes of reasonable worship before God would be discerning how you're built together and entrusting that God has sovereignly positioned you within the body of Christ to build up his church. Now we begin reading in verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Wow, right? Wow, we read these words, and for many of us, this feels like a kidney punch because we recognize that we have massive room to grow in this host of rapid-fire exhortations that Paul lists as reasonable acts of worship before the Lord. Now, as I consider this passage, I think you only write these things if there is a tendency for people to do the very opposite of these things. So in our small group this week that meets in my home, we were considering what would be some of the opposites that would be produced in the people to whom Paul is writing. Paul knows that their passions may wane, and there are certain expected characteristics that will emerge if this happens. For example, superficial relationships. Therefore, Paul writes, let your love be genuine. Hypocritical living. Therefore, he writes, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Selfishness. Therefore, he writes, outdo one another in showing honor. Apathy. Therefore, he writes, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Discouragement. Therefore, he writes, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Anxiety. Or prayerlessness. Therefore, he writes, be constant in prayer. Paul recognizes, as we do, as we sit under the teaching of the Word this morning, that these outcomes represent for all of us the sin that clings so closely, that so easily entangles us. The ever-present residue of our formerly depraved hearts wars against our practice of these good works around seemingly every juncture. This is why the descriptions of the Christian life in the Bible speak of fighting, of race, of battle, of war. We are not skipping through fields of flowers with Jesus. This is a struggle. It is always going to be a struggle. So, have heart, friends. If you don't find yourself naturally producing the very things that Paul commands in this text, you are in good company. We all have room to allow the Spirit to do work in our hearts this morning in light of these exhortations. Now, notice, it's interesting for me, the contrast between these challenges that Paul gives and what you may read in the Old Testament. So in many ways, Romans 12, this outflow, you've been saved, now do this, is a, is a model for us of what we see in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. God has redeemed a people, he has called them to himself, he has saved them, and then he says, now go and do these things. So he gives them the law, Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, and then really the, all of the book of Leviticus is the Old Testament version of Romans chapter 12. It is the, in light of the saving work that I've enacted, here are the things that you are to do. So let's just take a glance. Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Here's how this reads. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, he and his wife shall go out with him. If the master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, 
And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. All boring through your ear was the explanation, the exhortation for neighbor love in the Old Testament. This is what loving care for slaves looked like. It has this very physical, concrete, external, earthy tone to it. The New Testament exhortations, particularly here in Romans 12, if you notice, they aim at a much deeper level. We're not talking about boring people's ears through here in the text, but we're talking about heart issues. We're talking about things like love and generosity and hospitality to one another. These are intangible factors that are very difficult for us to measure, but this seems to be the very thing that Jesus does in his famous Sermon on the Mount with a consistent reputation. You've heard it said, anyone who murders his brother, but I tell you, anyone who's angry in his heart. You've heard it said that anyone who commits adultery, but I tell you, anyone who's lusted in his heart. Jesus radically places obedience in our hearts that the outcome of reasonable service begins internally and then fans out externally. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So, in light of Romans 12, out of the abundance of our heart, transformed in right worship of God, there are two main categories that I would place these commands in. First would be the command to give of yourself in love. And second the command to give of your resources in love. Give of yourself in love and give of your stuff in love. Now, even as I bring those two central commands to the forefront, there are dangers of the enemy at work in our church right now. One danger would be that of comparison. Well, compared to everybody else sitting around me, I do pretty good in those areas. You should see how I measure up compared to that dude who's really somewhat of a mean-spirited man, right? Comparatively, I'm doing quite good. For some of you, the enemy's work in your heart right now is in the area of shame. You tend to bow your head knowing that even at the outset, before I preach any words of this sermon, you are falling far short, and the enemy wants to pile on you a sense of defeat. For some of you, the temptation of the enemy this morning is blame. Look around. Well, if they just do something different, then it'd be really easy for me to be a loving person, right? Well, if they just do this differently with their money, then it'd be easy for me to be more generous. Or perhaps the temptation is judgmentalism. In light of this comparison trap to point blame, fingers of condemnation at other people, and do what is so often the case in the church, heap condemnation on the local church. Well, the church is just failing 
so I'm going to do my own thing. Or perhaps the fifth danger would be that of self-sufficiency. And this is what I've tried to undermine these texts with the last three weeks is to say, you can't do this without the power of God's grace. This is reasonable acts of worship. So walking out saying, I'm going to try harder is insufficient. It's the rowing poster of motivation. It's not going to last. But why do these things matter? Why do these things matter? Why is it important for us to push past the enemy's temptations as we come to this text and actually consider them and hold our lives up and say, where, where could I grow? One, because they demonstrate a heart of worship and thankfulness. And so any of us that have been redeemed by Christ would say, if there is any area that I can grow in my worship, I want to grow. They allow other people, both in this church and outside in the nations, to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. So we want to grow. They tether our hearts to God's mission through his church. They connect us. Jesus is going to say that where our money goes, our heart follows. Where our love goes, our heart follows. And as counterintuitive as it may be, they are actually for our good. That the giving, the self-giving posture that this text demands actually is for our good. So let's consider these in order. Number one, giving of ourselves in love. Let's isolate the verses that speak to this. I've pulled them out of the text because of the rapid-fire nature of this passage. Let's just reread these commands. Let your love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, what you are going to see very clearly from these exhortations to give of yourself in love, these can only be worked out in the context where you are close enough to other people to have to apply these commands. This is why mere spectator religion is such a tragedy. Because you can come to church week in and week out, Sunday in and Sunday out, and never be forced into a context where you have to obey these things. So these passages are going to demand for us at the outset that we lean into one another enough to get hurt, to offend people, to have a few people who persecute us so that we actually have to bless them. These demand us giving of ourselves in love, and I would suggest that self-giving in love is the antidote to stagnation. It is the means by which God propels our heart forward in love. And notice the recipient of love in this passage. It is consistently the other, the outsider, the enemy, the lowly. Our hearts, I say our, I think I'll put us all in this bucket, our hearts gravitate to love of the saints. We have a predisposition to find it quite easy to love people who are a lot like us. That type of brotherly love comes natural to many, both inside and outside of the church. But the type of love that the scriptures compel are gospel love. 
They're the type of love that Jesus demonstrates in coming to this earth. They are fundamentally the love for the other. They are the love that stoops. They are the love that considers people that are not like them. And we have great danger of this in the Southern church. We can quickly become guilty of allowing Southern niceness to be a mask behind which we hide and never actually do the hard work of loving somebody else. We can allow the cordial Southern niceties to cause us to put up a barrier of protection that never does the hard work of loving the other. So Paul writes, let your love be genuine. Let it be without cracks, nothing hidden. Outdo one another. Notice the nature of these commands. They are all very, very active. They say, you seek out how to show hospitality. You outdo one another in showing honor. You work to live in harmony with one another. These are very active. Paul puts the ball in our court and says, as a reasonable act of service, you seek out how to give yourself away in love. Now, this is going to, at every juncture, push against us. Because here's, the way, here's my fear for how church can easily operate. We run ourselves to death through the week. Killing ourselves and work and busyness and kids and soccer practice and Sunday morning becomes a place where we just take a deep breath. We run, 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 run. Sunday, we deep breath. You come, you meet my needs because, man, I am absolutely exhausted. In fact, it's very easy for us to wear exhaustion as a badge of honor. So if we come in on Sundays and basically just kind of lay in the seats, absolutely white, in many cases it can be as if we're flexing our spiritual muscles. Look at me. Look at all the great things I did this week. Now I've got absolutely nothing left to give when the church gathers. That, friends, exposes our lack of care for one another. It exposes our lack of prioritization of this place. If we're all so exhausted we can't give of ourselves in love, then we need to consider how to radically reshape our lives such that we are postured to care for one another. Such that we are postured to get here 30 minutes early and stay 30 minutes late, have deep, intimate conversations, not have to run home on Sunday afternoons and crash because we're absolutely exhausted and the rat race is going to start again tomorrow morning, but we could actually invite someone into our home and share a meal with them. We could give of ourselves in love for one another. So what might this look like in our church? Hospitality is one clear way that we can grow that we seek to give of ourselves by inviting other people into our lives. And based on this passage, fundamentally people who are different than us. So, Sunday mornings, self-giving posture of love, that means head on a swivel, who are the people looking around that I could invite into my life? What would it look like in a church if on Sunday morning everyone was saying, how could I leave this place showing hospitality for the people that I don't know that I'm disconnected from? How could we leverage Sunday lunches to be a means of showing grace and care for one another rather than simply going home, eating the meal that we put in the crock pot and crashing on the couch for four hours? Prayer for one another. Encouragement to one another. Support for burdens. Weeping when we weep. 
celebrating when others celebrate, it gives me no greater joy as a pastor than to hear reports throughout the week of you caring for one another. You loving one another, you seeing a need and meeting that need. And I can tell story after story of ways that you are growing and caring for one another. Here's our goal as a church. This is a big goal, but this is our goal. That we would have 100% involvement in loving that the members of this church would be proactive in their love such that there was no space for passive sitting and consumption. That we would all be active and growing in these areas. Secondarily, that we would give of our resources in love. That we would give of our resources in love. Notice verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Verse 20. This outworking of love, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you remember last week when we were talking about the gifts to the body in verses 3 through 8, one of those seemed a little bit out of place. If you excel in giving, give generously. So what might this look like in a church that sees giving of our stuff and love as a reasonable act of worship in light of the gospel? On the one hand, it's going to look like ongoing, unstructured giving that nobody else is going to see. And I celebrate you, church, again. I hear testimony after testimony of a church that sees a need and meets a need. And that is the type of community I want to invest in. No one has anything in common, but we share with one another. Now again, this requires you leaning in enough to know where needs are and burdens are, but there would be this regular, ongoing, unstructured generosity. And many of you here this morning are the recipient of that generosity, myself included. And two, it's going to look like regular, structured giving to the ministries of the church, the ministries and mission of the church. As in the Old Testament, the giving to the temple and the Levites was a means of facilitating the worship of God's people and pooling our corporate resources to fund ministries and missions that we deem vital to our church's mission. So ongoing unstructured giving to those in need and regular structured giving to the missions and ministry of the church. So let's hold that up as an area of consideration for us this morning. Let's consider what our giving looks like as a body. Right now, through your generosity and giving, you are making it possible to fund three full-time pastors at work here at the church as well as three part-time staff members. Your resources are allowing us to funnel money to three international mission sites where the gospel is at work and hard-to-reach places around the world, where we have intentional missionaries. Your resources are allowing us to invest in two strategic church plants and raise a team and send folks to plant other churches in the future. Your resources are allowing us to run a pastoral training institute that this year has 30 young men who are seeking, aspiring to pastoral ministry, that has now spawned off a group in Spartanburg that has another 30 pastors 
that are meeting consistently for the sake of pastoral training and sending for effective mission and ministry in the church. Your funding is allowing us to run a host of ministries around TCC. I was here on Friday night while Amber hosted a volunteer training on Friday night. Now granted, it was like a dozen women that loved hanging out together and eating chicken salad and having a great time. They gave of their time on a Friday night to seek to grow and how they could care for the children of this church, doing phenomenal ministry to equip you as parents and caregivers to disciple the children that God has entrusted to our corporate care. Those ministries are run and funded because of your generosity. And lastly, one area that you may not know as a church is that we are a part of a greater giving army. About 46,000 churches that are called Southern Baptist churches around North America that have a funding mechanism that's been around for a long time that allows those churches to pool their resources in order to do things like facilitate six seminaries where pastors and leaders are equipped and trained and sent. In our state, that money goes to fund three Christian colleges, North Greenville, Anderson, and Charleston Southern, as well as run a host of other ministries. This money is collected and pooled and sent to the International Mission Board, which in my estimation is the best international sending agency known to man, to put intentional people in strategic places so that the mission of God can go around the world. And your giving funnels through our church to fund this and a host of other intentional ministries that we feel like God has called us to participate in. We are grateful for the structured, consistent giving and generosity of you as a church. This past year, we approved a church budget of $549,000 approximately. Toby likes to say ish on his number amounts, so I'll do that uh, as we talk a little bit. 549000 ish right? Which means in order to support all those things that I just listed, we as a church need a regular structured giving of $45,000. $45,000. Right now, as a church, we have 113 member giving units as a body. It's a fairly young church and a recently merged church. We have 113 giving units, so clearly that would mean Sarah and I are a couple. We're both members, too, but we're one singular giving unit. We give out of the same pot to fund the ministry of the church. So that amounts to a need of roughly $400 per giving unit to fund the mission and ministry that God has entrusted to us as a local church. Currently, at this point in our giving year, our average monthly giving is right around $36,000. Put the number in the breakdown of the months that we've had up to this point in our giving year on the screen behind me so that you can see that number fluctuates a good bit throughout the year. But on average, we have a difference of about $9,000 a month that we are not taking in in order to fund the mission and ministry that we have approved as a church. Now, does this mean that we are not a generous people? By no means. Uh, about a month ago, I held out before you the needs of Scott Cato and his family at Slater Baptist Church, and in one Sunday of giving, we collected over $5,000 as a church to bless Scott and his family and provide for their needs. You are a generous people, and we are deeply 
thankful for that. But this is one area, as we consider the regular structured giving in the church, that we are seeking to grow as we finish this year. To this point in the giving year, of our 113 giving units, 93 of those have given something in 2015. We have at least 16 members who give to this church on a regular basis. And our current average giving unit for our members is in the high 200s, basically $120 or so short of our monthly need. Now, what are the reasons for that in the life of our church? Well, some people here may not be able to give. And we get that. We have a high percentage of college students here on a week-to-week basis, and you may simply not have income to be able to give. One of the things I hope exposing you to these needs does for you if you're a college student here is shows you that other people are carrying your weight. This is an outworking of Galatians 6, that we're bearing one another's burdens. You are the recipient of the generosity of the people that you sit around. This is a reason to come out of anonymity as a college student and connect because these people are giving to make the mission and ministry of this church happen. Some people may not know to give. That's what I'm going to bank on this morning and taking a risk and sharing my heart with you on a Sunday morning. We could easily do this at a family meeting. But to say that some of you may just assume in a broader church like this that's growing that all the needs are being met that your generosity is sufficient, and that there's no room to grow. And I'm trusting that the Spirit will work to compel us to give. Some people may not know the need, may not know where we stand, and some of you, honestly, may not be meaningfully connected. We recognize that our finances is one clear criteria to discern our connectivity to the body. So some of us may be standing at a distance and not really leaning in to the mission and ministry of the church. Well, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to say our goal is 100% involvement in our giving. We want to grow in seeking the Lord to pool our resources to lean into the mission that God has entrusted to us. Many of you may have read a story this week. Uh, it was all over social media and online uh, outlets that our international mission board Uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, President David Platt, announced recently that over the last five years, they've had a shortfall of $210 million in their collective giving to the cooperative program to fund international missions. And as a result, they've been able to make that up through the sale of properties and good business investments, but uh, Dr. Platt announced this week that we're going to have to, as Southern Baptists, We're going to have to pull six to 800 missionaries off the field, bring them, bring them back to the U.S. Because we, we just can't afford it. And so, like right now, as we speak, missionary families that have given their lives to do what Jill or David Napril have done, like been there 20 years, are being given packets for early retirement and brought home. Because it's the only way this thing sustains itself. I knew I was going to cry. I had it in my notes. I should have written cry here. <laughs> that, 
that breaks my heart. It's one thing if, if I don't have a job. It's a pastor in Greenville. But for us to lose missionaries in dark places in the world, that's heartbreaking. And I want to lead us to be a people as a small church in Greenville, South Carolina, that excels in our generosity. We can't make up a $210 million shortfall internationally, but we can do something. We can do something. We can be a generous people who release our resources for the sake of God's mission around the world, and we can all find meaningful ways to grow in our giving such that the ministry here is not stunted and the mission around the world is not stunted. Certainly, we don't have these clear tithing principles in the New Testament, as we might in the Old Testament, and scholars debate back and forth what's the basis of our giving. The basis of our giving is the self-giving nature of God, Amen. who stooped to give himself through Christ and compels our generosity. Notice Paul's words to the church in 2 Corinthians. He writes this, the point's this, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That is written. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many with thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God to you. Then I love this ending, right? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He leans into a church that earlier he's written, you gave out of your poverty. You gave out of your poverty to contribute to the needs of the saints and the basis of that is this inexpressible gift of God. So what are our actions in 100% giving? One, would you join me in prayer for the giving of our church? That God would continue to grow us in generosity so that we could do the things that we believe God has put before us. If you are here and you're one of those 113 members, member giving units in our church, would you allow the average of $400 a month to meet the needs of the ministry here to inform your prayers about how you can grow in generosity? And specifically to the 93 that are already giving, we can make up our budget shortfall with a simple increase of approximately $80 a month in the giving of those 93 people to account for that $9,000 shortfall per month. If we all, 93, leaned in and sought the Lord to grow, I give that to you not as law. I give that to you as information for your prayers and your trusting of the Lord. 
We are right now meeting and considering our budget for 2016. And we are going to have to do IMB-like things if we don't see growth in these areas. We will not be able to sustain the mission and ministry that we have funded this year if we don't see growth in those areas. So I come to you and appeal to you as your pastor that we would seek the Lord for growth and generosity, recognizing that it is a means of loving one another. Why would we pursue one another in love? Why would we pursue one another in the giving of our resources? Because this is what God has done for us. The self-giving nature of God is nowhere better embodied than in the Lord's table, where we have for us pictured the self-giving nature of God condescending to human form to meet a far greater need than our physical needs of money to meet our spiritual needs of a depraved heart. This Christ was broken on our behalf so that we could be empowered to do the very things that these texts demands. This morning, we're going to administer communion a bit differently than is typical around TCC. In light of our desire to communicate unity as a body, in our member service from last week, in our loving service, and in our generosity and our giving, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a big family uh, this Sunday. We're going to distribute the elements of the table to you where you're seated. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, and we're going to have some leaders come and distribute the elements. The band is going to come and lead us in a song of reflection. You're welcome to sing with the song as they lead us. I'm going to ask that you hold the elements. Don't take of the elements when you get them but that you hold the elements until the end of the song. And at the end of the song, I'm going to come and read the Lord's Supper passage to us, and we will receive the elements together as one body. This for us is a picture of the shared unity that we have as the people of God. I'm going to ask if you're here and you're not a believer, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, that you pass on the elements and you take Christ that you allow the elements to pass, and during the administration of the meal, the pastors will be up front and in the back. I'll be standing off here to the side. Donnie will be over here to the side. If you would like somebody to pray with, we would be delighted to pray with you and talk to you about what it means to follow Christ. For those of you that are already Christ followers, as you're holding these elements, would you allow the Spirit to work to convict you to compel you by the beauty of Christ, to confess any known sin, perhaps to pray with your family if you're seated with them. And at the end of the song, we will take the meal together. Join me as we pray. The band will come now. If you guys would come, come on up to the stage. As they come, if you'll join me in a prayer of reflection, and then we will distribute the elements of the Lord's table. Father, may the self-giving love of Christ compel us. Would you protect from legalistic obedience? Protect us from our morality, 
from t- protect us from trying to clean ourselves up? And would this table humble us as we consider that we could do nothing to earn your favor and yet you stooped in love for us? And would that generosity compel us to be a generous people? Generous in our giving, generous in our love, generous in our service. If there are impediments to that this morning, broken relationships, distrust, lack of commitment, God, would you allow us to confess those before you and perhaps even to our brothers and sisters and to commit again this day to reasonable worship in light of the grace of God. Do you use these moments of reflection to stir our hearts for Christ's sake? Amen.